The Fremont Local Food Hub podcast is all about promoting local food and healthy eating. And the Lander Body Works helps their clients continue that healthy lifestyle. Lander Body Works is a fitness studio located at 605 Main Street in Lander. They offer a variety of exercise options, including spin classes, TRX, personal training, and much, much, much more. Follow them on LanderBodyWorks.com and like their Facebook page. The Fremont Local Food Hub podcast is all about promoting local food and healthy eating. And the Lander Body Works helps their clients continue that healthy lifestyle. Lander Body Works is a fitness studio located at 605 Main Street in Lander. They offer a variety of exercise options, including spin classes, TRX, personal training, and much, much, much more. Follow them on LanderBodyWorks.com and like their Facebook page. This is Jack Schmidt for Fremont Local Food Hub Podcast and Lander Body Works. This is Jack Schmidt. Welcome to the Riverton Local Food Hub Podcast. The story of one little town in Wyoming who's struggling hard to regain its food sovereignty. So maybe we should explain just a little bit by what we mean by food sovereignty. In in one generation, basically since the end of the Second World War, that's my generation, our food system has changed from where most of our food was produced locally by small farmers within a community and processed and marketed right there, this system has changed to a system that's favored large producers that are located in areas many times hundreds of miles away from where it's consumed. These large, specialized producers can take advantage of economies of scale, and many times they vertically integrate, and they got their own processing and marketing. So these big producers have a huge economic advantage. Really, our food policy in the last 75 years is favored these big operators. Our food policy has encouraged farmers to specialize in one crop that's best suited for that particular area. And that's what they did. Farms got bigger. And there's gotten to be a lot, lot less of those farmers. I think the statistic is now that less than 2% of the population is actively involved in farming and food production. Where it was very common 75 years ago to have three or four farms on a section of land, uh, sections 640 acres or, or one square mile. Now, in many areas of the United States, one farm might encompass eight or ten sections, five or 6,000 acres with big machinery. So, in many areas, one large operation could have displaced up to 40 farmers. This system, it's not all bad. It's been very efficient for food production, and food costs plummeted. I remember real well my father telling me when he, when he came back from the war in 46, that was the Second World War, that he was paying almost a third of his income to buy food for the family. Well, I think that figure now is under 10% of what we spend on food. So while food has become cheap, Many of us believe it has lost other characteristics that we want to regain. Characteristics that only freshness and lack of processing can add back to that food. And the only way 
for food to be fresh is for it to be local. And that's what we mean by food sovereignty. We want to have the choice to buy food that's produced, processed, and marketed in our local area. And to be able to vote with our dollars on how that food is produced. Now, now don't get me wrong, we certainly don't want to overthrow the commodity food system. Many, many people favor cheap food. That's indicated by the growth of the huge box stores, that low-priced leader down the road, and, and $5 breakfast at the casino. And many people think that the only way to feed 9 billion people in the world is with commodity food. And maybe they're right. I don't know. But those people vote with their dollars, and they vote commodity food. But there's a trend for people like me, maybe like you, who want to buy locally produced, locally processed food. And that food's really hard to find. What's happening is we've lost our ability to choose. Local production has dropped almost out of the equation. Almost. So I guess by sovereignty, what we're talking about is our ability to choose what we eat. So the Riverton Local Food Hub was formed to help people regain this choice, to be able for them to find food that's not only grown locally, but processed and marketed locally, and for that dollar to stay in our community. The way we've done this is to form a support group, and that's the Riverton Local Food Hub. The hub has several spokes, and these spokes address the needs within the local food system and indeed help to rebuild that system. We've been at this less than a year, but by golly, we're kind of getting things done. The first thing we had to do was find a base to operate out of. And that came about in September of this year when we signed a lease with the city of Riverton to operate a cafe at the airport. This cafe's been closed for several years, but had a wonderful little kitchen. And as our biggest need in this local food revival was an incubator kitchen, for producers to be able to comply with consumer health rules and be able to sell to the public. We leased that facility, and the incubator kitchen's up and going. And the first spoke in our hub is active. We've got a producer that's going to be producing cheesecake really in the very near future, and we've had several inquiries by other producers. So if you've got a product that you want to get into the local economy, go to the website. Check us out and see if there's any way that we could help you. The second spoke in the Food Hub was a restaurant specializing in serving that locally produced food. So the airport cafe has been up and going for six weeks now and getting along pretty darn good. As you might expect, it's a challenge to source locally sourced food for a commercial establishment and not to cheat and, and go to the food service company because by golly, they do a great job, and their prices are low, but it's not local, and it's not fresh. So we try to buy everything we can right from the farmer, as fresh as it can be, and our menu is always seasonal. So come by and see us. It's basically right now a breakfast and a lunch joint from 6 a.m. to 2 p.m., but I think you'll be pleasantly surprised to see what country folks can do in that farm-to-table arena. The third spoke that's rapidly taken shape at the food hub is, is eggs. 
Now, we've discovered since we started this restaurant that the consumer health rules in Wyoming require that eggs be inspected and graded before a restaurant can serve them. And as there are no inspection and grading facilities in the great state of Wyoming, we're just out of luck when it comes to serving local eggs. Now, they say that that Fremont County has more laying hens than any other, any other county in the state. Now, I, I don't know how they count them. If you've ever tried to count chickens, boy, that'd be a tough job. But I believe that there is a lot of chickens around, a lot of backyard chickens, a lot of small flocks, a lot of farm flocks. And that means there's a lot of eggs around. And we want to be able to serve those local eggs at the restaurant. So to do this, we're looking at putting in an inspection and grading facility right there at the restaurant. We've got the commercial kitchen. Consumer Health says, by golly, we can do it. So we're taking the training right now and inviting other people to help us make this work so that we can not only serve local eggs ourselves, but so that all the restaurants in the area can take advantage of that great local product. So today, let's, let's talk about eggs. Now, that, that farm flock that was on every farmstead in America 75 years ago. So today, let's talk about eggs. Now, that farm flock that was on every farmstead in America 75 years ago <laughs> went the same way as all of agriculture. They got specialized, they got big, and they got moved where it could be done the most efficiently. The big egg producers decided that the most efficient and best way to handle the chicken was to put her in a cage in a barn and feed her a ration that was hauled in and she wouldn't have to move very much at all. Basically, all she has to do in that 12-inch square wire cage is turn around. There's water in one corner, there's feed in another corner, and she poops out that egg in the back. And this is very efficient, and this makes Commodity eggs, very, very cheap. But it's not, maybe not the most desirable lifestyle for a chicken. As anybody knows that's ever had an egg produced by a chicken that's had access to the outdoors, one that's been scratching the ground and eating bugs and grass and, and, a, and, a, and a diet that's has nature intended it to be, that egg is totally different from a commodity egg. The first thing that'll hit you is the color of the yolk. It's a bright orange or maybe yellow, depending on what the chicken's been eating. And that yellow's more firm and it stands up and, well, it just tastes better. And I'll tell you what, you just can't compare them. So many of us want these eggs produced by small operators that allow their chickens access to the outdoor and where they can act like a chicken. So, Today on the podcast, we've got an expert on eggs, and we'll talk to him today. We're talking to Jason Emmonson. <laughs> Jason, what's your town? I keep forgetting. What, when? Uh, we're in northern Minnesota, up in Duluth uh, by Lake Superior. And the, and the town of the, the little town that you're at? Uh, our farm is in Renshaw, about that's, 20 miles to the south. That's what I was trying to remember. So yeah. if, if you will allow me, would you let me tell your story, and then you can correct me. Is that okay? 
it works for me. Okay, because I'll probably okay. I I could expand on it better than you can, maybe. So I got I I got uh, acquainted the first time uh, with you, with your story, of course, by the book that you and your wife wrote, uh, and she was on the local radio station here on the phone. And that's where I heard of it first, and it's a great story. And this is this is how I remember it: that you both had jobs in the kind of the corporate world. She was an editor for for Reader's Digest, and you were at Mayo's kind of as a grant writer. But basically, you're both in cubicles staring at screens all day, and mm-hmm. we all know how that affects your psyche. But you did have a house in the in the suburbs with four or five chickens in the backyard. Uh, what Lucy called gateway chickens i think anyway mm-hmm. so you came home or, or went out on a date or something and by gosh decided you know honey we're gonna start a chicken farm and raise raise eggs and i could just see the look on her face when that happened but you the, i admire your tenacity because you got it done you went out and got 100 acres and literally dropped the corporate world and went into the pastured egg business and that story is the story with the book and and the company that you uh, formed uh, and named the locally laid egg company and what I remember uh, and you correct me if I'm wrong this was in the oh, what six seven eight years ago and there yep, was a, exactly okay and uh, into it is that the right name of the company that that had the had the contest uh, yeah for for a, for a business model uh, and the prize for the winner of that of that uh, whatever that contest was for the business model was an ad on the Super Bowl, and mm-hmm. you entered that, and kind of was kind of the infancy of of digital marketing, and really did a crackerjack job uh, in that area and getting the, the company started. And you didn't win the contest, but you came in second. Was that right? Yes, we came in second. There were fifteen thousand companies that entered, and. Uh Although we didn't win the grand prize of the Adam Super Bowl, we we uh, we did very well. Yes, and uh, got a trip, yeah got a trip to New York out of the deal, and uh, we are been very very grateful for Intuit um, uh, sponsoring that contest. It really put us on the map. Yes. Okay. Now and and now you're ma- this is this is your livelihood. You've you've, you've accomplished that goal. So would you yeah, would so. you describe your business model then to us on the pastured eggs? <laughs> Well, so there's a couple of components to it. So there's, there's a business of like many other businesses. So I guess the simplest example, Jack, would be a grocery store. So a grocery store doesn't really produce anything. They just simply buy it and resell it. They buy a can of beans at one price. They resell the can of beans at a different price. So our company does the same thing. We work with a Amish community. Uh, who produces eggs to our standards. So we're buying the eggs and then reselling the eggs at a different price. Uh, at the same time, we have a farm um, just south of the town I live in, and seasonally we also produce eggs on our farm. So that's um, so we definitely keep our hands in, in the game. But again, that's seasonal. So have you got a protocol that you're, uh, uh, let's call it, should, can we call them contract producers? Sure. Okay, because it's got a bad connotation in some places. It but, does, absolutely, it does. Yep. But let's. But you've got a protocol for the people that produce for your brand. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So we specify feed. We specify uh, time that they're outdoors. We specify times. 
um, it's just a litany of things in terms of, especially in the winter, you, you got to make sure that yes. the birds are engaged. So um, with dust bass, with free choice calcium, we want to make sure that they have access to, to hay, um, even though that they're not outside. So those are kind of the big things, for example, that we specify in the contracts. And one thing that, that I really admire, you've, you've uh, engaged the, uh, oh, what, what do you, the, the, the plain folks? Is that the, is that a term? The, the, oh, I'm sorry, the, the, the Amish and the, 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 the Mennonite communities and a lot of those people that uh, are really engaged in agriculture and know what they're doing. And one of the problems that, that I see in this, in this whole mix is uh, people want to dictate how those animals that we're stewarding are treated. And you can't mm-hmm. do that because every place is different. And every, you know, if you try to set down, well, they got to be outside, they got to do this, they got to do that. Well, yeah. So, yeah. So, to that point, what we try to do is we try to strike a balance. We say, well, if it's certain degrees above zero, excuse me, if above freezing, you know, the birds need to be outside, barring farmer discretion. So, for example, um, if there's a torrential rain and it's just muddy, well, no, you're not going to let the birds out. Right. But if it's 75, 80 degrees out and it's gorgeous, of course you're going to let them out. So it's just that, so it's that laying out expectations, but all the while knowing that you can't lay out on a contract every single situation a farmer's going to run into. Right, right. And I think that people need to understand that, that the the steward of that critter is going to treat him the best way he can. And it's not their... Absolutely, because it's really in their best interest because... um, you know, they, if, if they can produce the best quality egg that they can produce and treat the animal the best way possible, then, you know, everyone's going to win. So let's talk about that quality for a minute and, mm-hmm. and, the, and the difference. And I, I don't know. I hate to, I don't know. Let's, let's, let's call them commodity eggs. Sure. Because uh, that's, and let, we kind of describe that, what commodity is, I guess. It's, it's the huge, huge barns where, they don't mm-hmm. get much room. They don't get much sun. They don't, sure don't get much fresh air. They don't, don't go, don't get to scratch and dust bath and all that. And that product is totally different than what you're doing, isn't it? Absolutely, and you know it's it's a factory model. And I, and I think what you see is what you see. I'm going to pick on retailers, for example. The retailer kind of wants it all. They want they want price and they want quality. Well, those things are at opposite ends. Mm-hmm. Um, of the spectrum. You can't have both. Um, so what often happens in these large factory barns is they cheapen, um, the feed and they do that because they're really getting nothing for the egg. Uh, it's, you're competing with huge companies that are competing against one another and it's a race to the bottom. So you've got companies that are putting in artificial, uh, yolk agents. They are using poultry meal, which is a code for other dead chickens. They're feeding to live chickens. Um, they're using expeller grains from distilleries and breweries. So it's really about cheapening that product because the marketplace, um, frankly, just demands it. Um, people want cheap food, and they, they don't want to think about you know, where it comes from and what the costs are. Um, and we have a big egg processor that's been a business, or egg producer, a cage egg producer here in my region. I've uh, been in business for 40 50 years, they just went out of business. Um, they can't compete with these larger companies and it's, again, race to the bottom. So let's talk about price for just a little bit. And 
and and that's fascinating for me because I what we're doing we're calling this is really a social experiment to see if people will pay uh, what it takes to, to uh, produce a good product. Now mm-hmm. the food service companies uh, of which you know and they do a oh gosh they do a great job you know if you're in the restaurant business it's it's hard not to uh, be with them uh, but uh, uh, the, they're I think the last time I checked, it's 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 like eight or nine cents an egg, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Uh, now in our country, the the the, the uh, local producer wants uh, you know from three and a half to four bucks an egg. Mm-hmm. I mean a dozen, a dozen. I'm sorry. Uh, so you're t- you're looking four or five times more. But yep. what we're finding is people will pay it. Is that yep. what you're finding also? Well, yeah, but there's, you have to articulate the why, and okay. I think that's the core thing. And I, and I think what you're saying is, is what we try to facilitate is that it's a different product and, and explain why it's different and why we're saying uh, that purchasing our product represents a value system. So, for example, um, we at our farm have a problem with skunks. It's perennial. It just always happens. Um, we have to um, lock the birds up at night and um, let them out in the morning. Yep. We gather the eggs by hand. Um, we have numerous problems with, um, you know, just endless problems. But we take more risks and it takes more time um, to produce a better product. That is not something that a larger factory organization or company can say when they have a complex of 3 million birds with 300,000 chickens or 400,000 chickens to a barn. Um, at the factory. A, self, and, a self-respecting um, skunk won't even go close to it, will it? <laughs> no, it would be repelled by the smell. <laughs> um, so the other thing, too, is, you know, we are saying that in the era of um, a changing climate, that local food is increasingly important. And we are saying that um, to lower the carbon footprint, we want to produce and sell as locally as possible. And we do that. And we're very proud of that. Uh, that's in contrast to most food, which travels, you know, roughly 2,000 to 2,500 miles from farm to fork. Um, so, again, different product, different value system. Um, and it's not for everyone, but it, so far it's worked for us. Yeah, and that, that's what we want to try. That, that's exactly right. We want to see if it'll work here. Uh, and But we're going to have to basically kind of do what you're doing is to establish a system. Well, it's, it's not so much a system as it is a why. Like, why is it important? Why is it important that Wyoming have the local food hub? What does that mean? Um, and what we really focus on is dollars. And it's not, um, for example, in our case, and I think it's one that you guys can certainly replicate, is we work with an Amish community in an extremely poor uh, part of Minnesota. And the beauty of the Amish um, is that that money truly, truly stays local. They are not sending, they're not shopping online. They're not sending money to Jeff Bezos with Amazon or Jeff Bezos, um, Amazon or not, yep. not sending money, uh, all around the world. Exactly. They're literally keeping that money local. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that yeah. thing can, that can be replicated in Wyoming in the sense of your money stays here. And they say that that dollar that stays there then generates seven times more dollars. So mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely huge, huge impact, huge impact on that. Uh, so l- let's look at the structure then. 
we're going to have to, okay. And uh, uh, the Amish are a little different than, than Wyoming's in that uh, Wyoming is such an independent outfit. It's hard to get everybody mm-hmm. to, to, to track down the same path. Uh, but uh, when you got a logical uh, uh, way to go, I think I think we can get that done. And you're right. It is if, if we can show them where they can get a, a fair return for their labor, then people will uh, uh, come into the co-op association or whatever it is. So, is that what you kind of did? Was was with your with your contract thing? You uh, say you you'll you if you produce these eggs, we'll sell them to the highest advantage we can. Uh, no, no, we just we set the price. Okay, you know, we're not, okay, we're not. So you're not uh, brokers. So, no, well, we are technically brokers, but we're not. We don't follow a market. Um, so okay. in the in the commodity egg market, um, honestly, I don't really know how they structure their payments to their farmers. Um, I would not be I would not want to be on the receiving end of that. Um, but the farmer needs some certitude. They need an idea that if they're going to produce an egg, that that will buy it, assuming it meets standards. Yes. Um, so it creates an enormous amount of headaches for us. Um, you know, whether either you're long or you're short on eggs and either way you're wrong. Yeah. Um, so that creates a lot of problems, but with absent that guarantee, um, you're not going to have a lot of people banging up the doors to produce eggs for you. Right. So have you, have you, are you able to meet the demand? Um, currently no, Really. Uh, we are short. Uh, we're bringing on a new barn next month. Um, but it's not, it's a game where you're often wrong and it's brutal. And you can see it. And um, this past spring, we were long on eggs. We couldn't give them away. We were throwing eggs away, and um, you know, I lost insane amounts of money. Um, so it's it's hard to know. Right, right. It it and that's agriculture, isn't it? Whether whether it's well, it eggs is. or sheep or cattle, yeah, it, it is absolutely, yeah. yeah. So yeah. no, I mean, there's got to be better ways to make no money. <laughs> so we joke. Well, we, we, yeah, or, or better people, ways. Yeah, to, people, better ways to yeah, lose people, your money is what we did. Yes. No, I know. Yeah. yeah, we always, we always. People ask me, "What do you hope to achieve from locally laid?" And I just simply answer, "Middle class." <laughs> yeah. Very good. And let's so. let's go there for a minute because the first time I heard the term "middle ag" was in mm-hmm. your book. I don't think you coined it, but it, but it's a wonderful, wonderful term that. that Really, people want to. What we say here is, we want to move back sixty years, and kind of back to that, uh, not the subsistence level, but that middle egg that I had when I was growing up and when I was a young man before the great big guys came in here. Sure, and there ought to be a place for that, and I, I really think there is. Well, this is my sense is. Um, on that topic. So basically it's basically it's when you're saying middle ag, what you're really saying is that having that farmer recapture a bigger portion of the consumer dollar. Yes, sir. So that's not going to a processor. It's not going to a distributor. They're keeping more of what the consumer ultimately pays. Um, it doesn't matter what the product is. Sheep cattle doesn't matter. Right. So to do that, um, the farmer, is going to have to be uncomfortable. And that's not something uh, every farmer is willing to do. Um, or, or it's not their skill set. They'd rather be a farmer. Um, 
and it's hard enough as it is to be a farmer. It's even harder to become comfortable and become someone who is willing to write a food safety plan, yes. who's willing to interact with a distributor, who's willing to build a structure that meets state and federal inspection requirements. Um, and we've done that. It's not fun. It's certainly not cheap. Um, and it's necessary because if your goal is to um, meet the expectations of the 21st century food system, and it has many imperfections, but has many amazing things about it, that's what needs to happen. Yes, totally. And I, and I totally agree. We've got, in Wyoming, we're big in the, five years ago now, we the state passed the Wyoming Food Freedom Act, which says that between the producer and the informed consumer, there is no licensing and no regulation and no inspection. Wow. Okay. So, which opened us up to raw milk, every, you know, which, and it's wonderful. It gives us control over what we, uh, the best food safety is to know who produced it and, and have a very close relationship. If they're, the, the, we buy milk off a friend of mine, uh, and and she produces it for her family, and we get it too, and several other families do. So that's how. So so Wyoming is is unique in that respect, and a few other states are looking at this. But that does not translate into middle ag very good. There has no, to be. No, it doesn't. Yeah, right. So uh, so that's where we're looking at now is complying uh, with these food safety rules that sometimes go over the top. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah, boy, it's it's frustrating, isn't it? Well, a couple of thoughts on that. So, I mean, I think that the Wyoming thing approach is, is fascinating. I've never really heard of that before, and you know, hats off to, to Wyoming for doing that. So, my understanding about the food safety there's a, there's a couple of components of this. First is what we're looking at when you need an inspection of a facility. Um, primarily, what's driving that as I understand it, is the interstate commerce clause. When you're going to move product from Wyoming to Oregon or Wyoming to Washington State, whatever, yep. it doesn't matter. Um, you're, the, the hats of the inspectors change, at least they do in Minnesota. So um, what used to be a Minnesota Department of Agriculture hat coming in to inspect, it's now a federal hat. Same person, but they're wearing a different hat, um, doing a different set of inspections. Second is... Um, What's also driving the food safety um, focus is um, the distributor. The distributor is extremely worried about food safety and liability. And the last thing they want to do is end up in the, in the paper. And make, it makes sense to me. So you have a very small number of very large food companies who are driving product across an extremely large state like Wyoming. And they're going to protect themselves. And they're going to make you jump through hoops. Yep. And that's just the way it is. Um, they they're, they want to make sure that their their butts are protected. Yep. And I, I get it. Yep. Yep. So I can I, I and I I do see on on this uh, in, inspection part of it, you know, where that egg needs to be looked at, uh, just same way as inspecting cattle for slaughter or any kind of livestock. But the grading is something that kind of are uh, <laughs> when they when you have to do it by size. How much difference? How much discount are you taking for your off sizes? Is what I'm trying to say. Well, sir. it's actually, it's actually, interestingly enough, um, when it comes in the world of eggs, it's not size; it's weight. 
um, which is interesting. So um, there are legal standards for um, a dozen large eggs and a dozen extra large eggs. So as long as that carton meets that um, standard, you're fine. So for example, in the world of eggs, we have a flock. The flock starts laying eggs. You have a lot of mediums, uh, medium eggs. So you go, what do I do with the medium eggs? Well, you can mix them in with extra large eggs, and you got, as long as the carton meets that standard of a large dozen, you're golden. No problem. Okay. Um, so I, uh, on this topic of inspections, just to shift back briefly to that, I am of the opinion um, that it's a good thing. And this, let me explain why. Uh, as an entrepreneur, um, I am taking very, very large risks. I'm working my butt off. I, my butt's on the line. I want that inspection. I want that food safety plan. I want um, to make sure that our chickens are vaccinated for salmonella, even though it's not required. Good. I want that because it protects me. And it creates a barrier to entry for other people getting in who are, may not be willing to go through the process of interacting with the government, uh, who may not be willing to jump to the hoops as specified by the distributor. So, I want that. I I am decidedly pro government. You know, certainly within a reason, of course. Yeah. But it government is a useful function when it comes to this. Okay, I follow you there, uh, and and that's kind of my background. I was a cattle buyer for forty years, and I bought a lot of mm. slaughter cows. And that's when we're actually there's a there's a bill now uh, up uh, called the Prime Act, and it's a U.S. Act. Uh, that would would eliminate uh, a lot of inspection, and I'm I don't know how to think about that because as a cow buyer, uh, I did the best job I could. But every once in a while, one would go what they call in the tank; they'd be condemned because you can't see under that hide, and, and mm-hmm. you need that level of protection. So I certainly see what you're what you're talking yep, about there. Absolutely, and yeah. and I guess why wouldn't you? I mean, there's. I, I don't know. That's just my my perspective. But, uh, the, the the opposite side of that is when they get so when you're when you're spending half your time uh, complying with with rules that maybe absolutely yeah. yeah. So there's a balance yeah. there, isn't there? There absolutely there has to be a and this, and that tension's always going to be there. Yeah, and that's never going to go away. No, it is. When somebody tells me to do something, my hackles get up. That's all there is. You know, <laughs> even even especially if it's my wife. You know, golly. But so when you started your egg grading uh, uh, facility, uh, was that a huge hassle, or, or did you did it kind of flow pretty nicely? Well, you know, I didn't I didn't start it. I had someone else start it for me. Ah, okay, <laughs> so, okay. So that was even better. So it yeah. was their capital, and it was their interaction with yeah. the regulators. Yeah. So and it, it's but real. Then I, but then, of course, I'm running them a check, so it's not like it's free. I write them a check every week. And when you read the USDA manual, it's not, I mean, it's extensive, but it's not that hard. You know, you, 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 you wash them, no. you, you inspect them and then you, and then you weigh them and that's it. Yeah. So it's a, it's yeah, a fairly it's, no, simple it's, thing. It's really, yeah, it's not a hard thing. And, and the thing about it is, is, um, my experience with most inspectors has been positive. I don't have, um, for the most part, I don't have any issues, um, you know, they're, I just see them simply as people who are doing a job. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And let's, let's be clear that the inspector, what, what I understand is does the training, 
for for the person that's actually doing the grading. There's not a you. There's not a uh, a state person there to do the grading. Is that right? Is that what right? So what? Well, you know, I obviously can't speak for how Wyoming would do it, but I'm sure that it's, there's a similar process. Um, they what we do in Minnesota is that they will have periodic quarterly inspections, and they're always unannounced. Uh, they just show up. Got it. Okay. And either whether you're processing or you're not processing, what they'll do is they'll say you're not processing. What they'll do is they'll pull um, a sample of processed eggs. They're going to look for checks, meaning cracks or yes. breaks. Yes. Look for dirt, meaning manure on the egg, uh, cleanliness. So that's what they're doing. And then um, if there's changes that you're trying to make to the infrastructure of the, of the grading station, that's something, of course, you chat with the inspector about. Yep. yep. Well, Jason, by golly, I'll tell you, I've lied. This has been fun. I've learned a lot. You know, and at my well, age, when you learn. Time, yeah, yeah. So if you ever <laughs> if you ever come to Wyoming, stop out here. My gosh, we. Oh, I'm grateful. That'd be really fun. And you're, you're used to the cold. You'd fit right in, you know? Well, no, it's it's nice to chat with people who are familiar with uh, what it's like being cold. And we can do that. So we've been talking <laughs> to, to Jason Amundsen, and let me plug the book just a little bit, if that's okay. Uh, you we'll, bet. we'll put we'll put all this up in the in the in the show notes. But the the book is called Locally Laid, which is also the name of the company, and it's a great. I really enjoyed it. The, what I liked about it, Jason, is there there'll be one chapter of the story of what you did, and it's there's a lot of humor there, and then a story of very practical, useful knowledge about both poultry and eggs that everybody mm-hmm. can learn a lot about. So I'd encourage uh, you to read you. the books, and uh, we thank you today for your time, Jason. All right. Hey, thank you again for having me on the show, Jack. You bet. For our poem today, kind of like to find something on topic, and by golly, I couldn't find a chicken poem. But I did find a duck poem, and that's pretty close. That's poultry. This one was written by famous Baxter Black. Let me back the, set it up just a little bit. This is about a group of cowboys in the Flint Hills of Kansas. And in the Flint Hills of Kansas, I'm real familiar, spent a lot of time out there. They uh, lot of little old cow t- towns even to this day. Uh, and this one took place in the little town of, of Hymer, Kansas, about a group that was trailing some steers. And, and that's pretty still pretty common. They move those things uh, not so much with trucks, because the Flint Hills of Kansas are named for the Flint Rock, and that Flint Rock is terrible on a tire. So it's a lot easier to have a well-shod horse moving cattle than trucks. So this is a story about some cowboys moving cattle in the Flint Hills out of Hymer, and what happens when the duck comes by. It's named Dunny and the Duck. There are strange tales told in the days of old when cowboys tested their luck. But the queerest portrayal of life on the trail was when Dunny rode off with the duck. Now the boys and I were driving steers up north and stopped at Hymer to rest a bunch and have some lunch and just restoke our primer. We tied our horses to the fence and then commenced telling whoppers, and thus inclined, we watched a line of ducks 
come hunting hoppers. These ducks fell in behind our steeds and sorted through their droppings. For bits of grass or oats that passed, like barnyard poultry shopping, a young Orville hefted up a duck, which kind of starts this caper. Behind unfazed, old Dunny raised his tail to break a vapor. Why people do the things they do remains a constant wonder. Like Orville there saw Dunny's tail midair, and he stuck the duck up under. To say it took his breath away would sure describe old Dunny. Just as true, I reckon, that duck was kind of breathing funny, because underneath old Dunny's tail, two wings protruded oddly and filled the air with flying hair. The racket was ungodly. You talk about a hissy fit. Both fur and fowl were ruffled, and above the din, the duck chimed in, although his quack was muffled. Old Dunny reared and broke his reins. The other horses bolted and ran askew while feathers few like Pegasus had molted. I saw on top a distant hill old Dunny headed home in earnest like some time back he'd been attacked by a drunken taxidermist. For the Riverton Local Food Hub, this is Jack Schmidt. Uh-huh.